The world of development thinkers and practitioners is abuzz with a new lexicon, the idea of the nexus between water, food and energy. It promises better integration of multiple sectorial elements, a better transition to green economies and sustainable development. However, there appears to be little agreement on its precise meaning, whether it only complements existing environmental governance approaches or how it can be enhanced in national contexts. In this episode of Between the Lines, IDS fellow Shilpi Shravasta interviews Jeremy Alouche, Deepak Gawali and Carl Middleton, the editors of the book, The Water Food Energy Nexus. Hello and welcome to this podcast on the Water, Food and Energy Nexus. I'm Shilpi Srivastava, Research Fellow based at the Institute of Development Studies UK. I am a political sociologist working at the intersection of water, climate change and health. And I'm delighted to welcome the authors of this fantastic and provocative book on Water, Food, Energy Nexus, which raises some very important and critical questions on the dynamics of resource management through an inter intersectoral lens. So very timely book indeed. I'm joined by Jeremy Alouche, who's a professor professorial fellow at the Institute of Development Studies UK. Deepak Gyabali, who's a hydroelectric power engineer and a political economist by training a former Minister of Water Resources of Nepal. Deepak is currently based at Nepal Academy of Science and Technology. He's also co-chair of the South Asian Climate Action Network, CANSA. Carl Middleton is an assistant professor and director of the Center for Social Development Studies, CSDS, in the Faculty of Political Science of Chulalongkorn University, Thailand. Welcome, Carl, Jeremy, and Deepak, and thank you for taking time to talk to us. So before we start, maybe you can tell us a little more about the journey of this book. How did this book come about, and how did this collaboration start? Sure. F thank you very much, uh, Shilpi. So I'm Jeremy Alouche. Um, and essentially, the, the, the project, the book project, started through, uh, through the Step Centre. We got a project funded by the Step Centre, and at the time, to be honest, we did not think about a book. Um, Deepak, Carla, and myself were really interested in water issues, and especially water storage. And we were looking at sort of political economy issues, ecology, and sort of geostrategic uh, themes. And in some ways, I would say that the sort of nexus <laughs> came to us rather than the other way around. Um, through the sort of broader discourses and framing that were shaping river basin management, and especially in the Mekong, in the Mekong uh, River. But I think also because we started with water storage, also with our disbelief, our continued disbelief, I would say, into how water issues here, water storage, was in some ways still not thought in relation to sort of two key issues, food on the one hand and energy on the other. And at the end, we decided to do a book um, for several reasons. Um, before that, we did a special issue for water alternative that created quite a buzz. And the Nexus had a, such a political momentum that we thought it was really important to engage with it. But at the same time, we thought that the scholarship on the topic was quite biased, especially towards sort of engineering and environmental economics. And we really wanted to share a critical social science perspective. 
Great, and I, I think it links very well to my next question. So somehow the journey of the Nexus and your personal journey gets quite interlinked. And in the book, you mentioned that Nexus is also not a static concept over the years. And as you rightly point out, the Nexus has been used in different ways. And you talk about the Nexuses in plural. You discuss whether this is old wine in the new bottle, and this is related to the contestations and discussions that you've just touched upon that how Nexus came to you um, and the legacy of the integrated water resources management, which has been quite a paradigm in the water resource management sector. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what is the Nexus? And in your opinion, why is it relevant to talk about the Nexus? What extra does it bring to the table of resource management? I think for the listeners, the first thing for me to sort of help people sort of navigate the Nexus and the book is perhaps just to echo perhaps the most quoted definition of what the Nexus approach is. So it says that the Nexus approach aims to identify trade-offs and synergies of water, energy and food system, internalize social and environmental impacts and guide development for cross-sectoral policies. So in some ways, you, you know, presented this way first, the nexus there is very much singular, but also as a concept is very much a compelling idea. It emphasizes something of a holistic approach, which is much needed. It also provided, I think, uh, in some ways a policy answer to, um, just to put the context, to the 2007 and 2008 energy and food crisis, where we could see that the sort of food and energy prices were rising at the same time, showing the relationship between two, the two sectors. And also it, it was an approach that was very much taken forward by many uh, transnational corporations, such as uh, Nestle or Saab Miller, uh, that were taking uh, sort of resource management much more seriously. However, despite, despite the, 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 the sort of compelling side to it, there were some down, downsides. And in some ways, the, 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 the crisis created a sense of global scarcity and the unintended consequences were essentially a drive towards land, water and carbon grabs. The, the idea that basically um, uh, multinational companies were going in uh, sub-Saharan Africa or in Asia and buying a lot of land just in case for the future that there would be more resource scarcity. So that was a very uh, negative consequence of, of the crisis and its, uh, and its response. Also, what we're arguing is that in some ways, the way that the nexus is portrayed in a singular fashion is because it very much ignores local realities and demands. Um, it is portrayed at a global level to respond to this crisis but the nexus means many things for many people. In our study, for example, we looked, uh, for example, in the Mekong River Basin, how the Asian Development Bank, for example, was thinking of the nexus through infrastructure development, while on the other hand, the IUCN was thinking, thinking around ecosystem services. So there's been a lot of different approaches, but more fundamentally, I think our point is really to insist that the fragmentation of these sectors is the result of in some ways the rise of the modern nation state and also the rise of our disciplinary knowledges. And in some ways at the local level for 
for the farmer who's at the same time a fisherman and who's got access to many different types of livelihood. The nexus is a sort of daily reality. So in some ways we are trying to reconnect with those practices. So we are trying to rediscovering uh, the nexus from the, from the bottom up. Just to follow up on that, Jeremy, and how do you think it distinguishes from the previous paradigms in the water resource sector, especially the integrated water resources management about which you um, talk at length in the introduction. And do you think it builds forward from there or do you, do you see a marked distinction between the IWRM and the Nexus? No, I, I think they're different. I think they're different in the sense that IDRDR, IWRM was a very much water-centric concept. I think the Nexus has still a bit of a water bias, but the, the different communities in energy and in the food sector also sort of taking the, the, the concept forward. So it's a broader concept. The, the difficulty I think is when we were talking about IWM, but we could mention other concepts like the concepts of One Health or integrated rural um, uh, development uh, or uh, integrated livelihoods. I mean, there's so many different approaches that are holistic. The problem is that we, we seem to follow in the same trap. There's not much learning into what, what can we learn from these previous holistic approaches. So that's why we, we started very much with this discussion because in some ways, even if this nexus is a, a, a new and perhaps compelling idea and extend to uh, other sectors, well, how, how are we making sure not to remake the mistakes uh, that we did in the past? I'm, I'm curious uh, because in, in your response, Jeremy, you've used the word compelling twice. You started with compelling and then you qualified it with saying perhaps compelling. And now I'm, I'm going to turn to Deepak, uh, <laughs> which is about this compelling idea of the Nexus. So in the book, in several chapters, you mention in different ways that Nexus is a buzzword. It's sort of a Nirvana concept. So what do you think characterizes this traction towards the nexus? And do you think, um, because this was a long project as Jeremy has just pointed out, uh, running over several years, do you think that the uptake has changed or things have changed around the nexus and the way it's being conceptualized now? Or do you think nothing has changed since you wrote the book and we're working around and continue to work around this concept? Uh -oh. First, uh, you know, buzzwords are powerful. You know, they, let's not forget, they're like political slogans. Uh, they are very simplified, okay? Uh, just a few words maybe, uh, but they en encapsulate a huge amount of things that sets the direction for entire masses of people to follow, okay? So uh, buzzwords are uh, really important and we academics should not, uh, <laughs> underestimate the power of those buzzwords, okay? Now, uh, Nexus has become exactly like that because it came at a time, uh, there's an old history to it and all that, but as Jeremy already mentioned, it really acquired attraction after that uh, 2008 uh, uh, crisis uh, and the Arab Spring and every other spring around the world that happened then because uh, people suddenly discovered. Now, environmentalists have been saying everything is related to everything else all the time, okay? And, uh, you know, uh, they've been beating their uh, uh, heads about it, chest and head as well. But uh, the, it was only because the business community uh, began to see that, yes, things are related, okay? Uh, uh, you know, food and water and energy seem to be related in ways that they had not anticipated. So what happened was that uh, 
it took a crisis. In normal times, you know, these slogans, uh, they, they work fine, institutions, silos, they work, you know, that's how they've been set up. And if times are normal, that's fine. Everybody goes around doing their own business and there's very little need to really interact. Uh, however, at a time of a crisis is when things fall apart. And that's when there is both a, uh, uh, an opportunity uh, and the danger that comes with it. But there is a window of opening uh, that allows for new thinking. And this is what happened to the Nexus at that point. You know, Now you ask, you know, well, is, is it the same? Is the uptake the same? And if I look back, I've been in several big you know, discussion forums since then of Fulbright Association here, you know, um, in Asia and uh, water alternatives mm -hmm. ran at the Dissensus Forum and so on. Uh, what is really interesting is it is running into the same kind of headwind, you know, that uh, say IWRM or circular economy or any of these other uh, Nirvana concepts run into, okay. First, because as the crisis dies down and things sort of start acquiring a normalcy, then, you know, it's again back to business as usual. Uh, right now, we have the COVID crisis, okay? I will probably talk about it in uh, detail towards the end. But uh, this is also forcing people to look at things very differently. So we talked about water, energy, food, nexus. Well, now there's a huge nexus between health and water. Uh, uh, you know, we have situations in Nepal and India where the, you know, the base laborers, the guys who actually get the city running, okay, uh, uh, with all their menial labor and things that nobody wants to do, okay, these guys are living in slums, uh, eight to a room, where the landlord ba barely provides maybe five liters of uh, water per capita per day, and if these poor folks are, first of all, how do you maintain social distancing in a room where eight people are sleeping, and second is how do you wash your hands 20, for 20 seconds, uh, you know, 20 times a day when you, provi you are provided only five liters of water a day. Okay? So you suddenly begin to see that there's all kinds of uh, linkages. But uh, uh, what is important here is that it's also running into, now Nexus, water, energy, food, all of them have supply chains that are really complex. Okay? And each element of the chain is tied to some extremely specific politics, okay? And, uh, you know, those politics, political issues are coming to the fore, uh, you know, challenging simple, simple solutions. And uh, uh, raising this simple question right now, to my mind, about um, who exactly is the social carrier of the Nexus? Now, with IWRM, it was easy. The development agencies quickly latched onto it. And, uh, of course, they ruined it with their procedural fetishism in the end. Uh, um, you know, just going for best practices and, uh, uh, you know, CD-ROMs of best practices. Uh, you can pick up and go to Angola or Burundi or wherever and do your IWRM. It didn't work. Okay. Same happened with the MDGs. Okay. Now we're into the SDGs and they're running into the same problem. Okay. So Nexus actually is, uh, I think it's still a very useful concept to help unpack each one of these international endeavors uh, to look at the uh, uh, the complexity of it, to look at who the social carriers of these various politics are, and to see if something can be worked out between them to bring about a solution uh, that is uh, better than individual solutions, okay? 
So this is where the Nexus is still valuable, but it is running into tremendous headwinds. Uh, but then, you know, there are other headwinds that are coming as well. COVID is just the start, I think. There'll be other COVIDs. Great. Uh, Deepak, I, I like that idea of social carriers that you mentioned. And just in terms of, so of course, you're, th that's a provocative point in terms of that we need to understand these social carriers as we move forward. But looking backwards, in the way Nexus has developed, what were or who were the social carriers of this framing um, or the different framings that you've observed? Uh, let me also give an example. You know, when I was Minister of Water Resources, I was ex officio automatically chair of what's called the Water and Energy Commission. Now, this was a very interesting outfit set up by uh, the Canadian Development Agency who pressured Nepal government for a long time saying water is very complicated, energy is very complicated. Uh, it's not only about hydropower, there is irrigation, there is flood control, there is fisheries, um, you know, whole gamut of issues. And there are different ministries. I mean, we found out there are 62 acts and God knows how many ministries dealing with different aspects of water. Okay? So they said this kind of a body would be useful. Now the governing board of that body is chaired by the minister, I was a minister, and uh, the full cabinet secretaries of about 12 ministries were members of that commission, okay? And we had a secretariat and all that. The problem was uh, that it was impossible to get all these secretaries to come and meet at all uh, because each one felt uh, that the water ministry was uh, encroaching on their turf, you know, especially powerful ministries like the finance ministry. Finance ministry is always a super ministry in uh, every country. Uh, forest ministry in Nepal by default over the ages has become, it's the largest area to control physically. In a, and so they are one of the most powerful ministries. They have judicial rights. Uh, they have the right to shoot people if they think they are uh, poachers or whatever, which nobody has. Okay, no, no other ministry has. So uh, what was you know interesting was here is a body that is institutionally designed as a nexus body. But the headwind, the political headwinds that come with each one of these ministries are such that, uh, uh, you know, they are all social carriers of their own individual silos, okay? But collective silo, the only carrier of that was either the prime minister or the cabinet. And the cabinet too got hijacked uh, along the way by each one of those ministries and, the, and their interests, okay? So it was an extremely difficult proposition. The idea was that, you know, the cabinet and the prime minister can't look at everything. So you would have a body that would do this nexus thinking, you know, but it was easier said than done. It was much easier said than done. We have a 40 year history of that, of how this body has not uh, sporadically done well, but uh, overall what it has been is it has been kind of like a dumping ground for unwanted senior civil servants, you know. If some secretary has not been to the liking of the prime minister or the minister, well, he's transferred there. He, the full secretary he still gets the same salary and perks, you know. Uh, but then he's uh, less powerful. There is one thing to manage a forest ministry or a finance ministry, and another to sit in a small building with about five or ten staff, even uh, uh, highly named uh, though it might be. So this is where the challenges are. Great, thank you, Deepak, and lots of lessons actually for all sorts of multi-sectoral uh, multi challenges in different sectors because Nexus probably started with the water, but as Jeremy also pointed out, there's one hill, there's circular economy. So we've been talking about uh, these multi-sectoral captions for each of the sectors and similar challenges. So thank you for those observations. 
Um, something that you touched upon and where you left Deepak was this word politics. And now I'm going to turn to Carl um, because I think what the book is really arguing is that the nexus as it stands, nexus with, an, with a capital N is, has been made technical. It's been used in a very apolitical way. And what all of you have argued is that no, it's a strong, it's, it's a seriously contested and political concept and should be understood that way because basically the social carrier or this phenomenon of social carrier is determined by the politics and the processes that underpin the politics of each of these different contexts. So my question to you, uh, Carl, is that there is this, the book plays on this binary between there's a mainstream framing and there is an alternative framing. So can you unpack that alternative framing of the nexus for us? And do you think there is an uptake for this alternative framing, putting rights and justice and politics at the heart of the matter? Um, I mean, I think we can look at this both in terms of academic literature and also how the nexus is being applied by practitioners. Um, I mean, I would say the short answer to the question is that for the academic literature, but also as an applied field of nexus studies in resource management, the majority of the studies still tend towards being technocentric or at least they tend to emphasize the physical sciences and economics. Um, as Jeremy mentioned, if we kind of look at what this view means first, and then we can compare it with the alternative. Um, this view of the nexus primarily kind of looks for the systems connections, both in terms of social and technical systems between food, water, and energy. And I guess it's innovation in a sense, is to look for the interconnections but really the goal is to optimize it. So to reduce inefficiencies, reduce externalities, but really with a goal, I think, towards maximizing growth. And I mean, why do we talk so much about power and politics? Well, I mean, within this, this approach, it really is primarily a top-down way of thinking about food, water, and energy. And as uh, Jeremy and Deepak have already introduced, we're really trying to look for bottom-up perspectives on the ways that food, water, and energy connect together, and also the questions of distribution around it. So if we, if we think about this kind of more uh, dominant approach at present, then it really privileges expert knowledge. And it's not always clear where there's an entry point for hearing local people's voices about their challenges, about their aspirations, about their experiences, and about their, their, their knowledge and their solutions. I think also very important and what we really try to foreground in the book is that by emphasizing market-based approaches and emphasizing economic efficiency, it doesn't really pay much attention to the question of distribution and social justice within these systems. And you know, that's where the politics is. Um, so, and I think at a very, very core level, fundamentally this kind of op optimization approach doesn't genuinely suggest the need for a more fundamental transformation of the way that we have food, water, and energy come into households and uh, supply society. Why does this approach remain the dominant thinking? Um, I mean, I think it's partly a politics of knowledge. Um, you know, by, by not really challenging the status quo and by appearing to appear progressive, by working towards a green economy, it really kind of legitimizes business as usual, but only with minor adjustments along the way. So on the, on the surface, this very um, nice idea, green economy, the nexus, appears kind of apolitical in, in intent, but in fact, it's highly political. So in our, in our book, 
we argued that power politics and justice are kind of the key barriers, but also the entry point about and governing an alternative nexus. Um, so if we look towards the academic literature, as, as Jeremy mentioned, uh, we engaged in the academic um, work through a special issue of water alternatives, unpacking these topics. And I think we can look at the academic approaches now and we can say that there is a, more literature emerging that is really problematizing the issue of power and justice within uh, the nexus and in, including questions of who takes decisions and on whose behalf. Um, but I think in terms of practitioners, the alternative nexus, I think we can find it on the ground as Deepak was hinting, but often the word nexus is not used or alternative nexus is not used. So to give you just a couple of very brief examples, um, there's a growing global momentum around the right to a clean, safe and healthy and sustainable environment. And I think if you look at the approach that's emerging in that human rights-based approach, there's a lot of connections being made between food, water, energy, health, and so on. So th this includes substantive rights like the right to life, the right to food, land, and water, but also procedural rights like the right to access to information, participation, and access to justice. And then it also pays particular attention to the rights of vulnerable or excluded communities for example, looking at um, indigenous people's rights. So they don't explicitly use the nexus, but they reveal the connections between these different important um, factors. Um, in another example from the region that I live in, in Southeast Asia, there's a growing, well, there, there's a strong movement around protecting the transboundary Mekong River from large hydropower dams. And again, although the word nexus is not used, a lot of the social movement that talks about the, um, the impacts of hydropower dams, talk of the connections between ecosystem health, community livelihoods, and the energy and water planning processes in the region, as well as the local and cross-border impacts that are caused. So I think in, in the case of this example, um, you know, the things that are done in those debates and discussions that range from state-led processes, like strategic environmental impact assessments, to um, activist lawyers uh, initiating a pioneering court case in Thailand to look at the cross-border accountability of investment from Thailand into neighboring Laos where these projects are being built are kind of examples of, of showing connections between food, water, and energy and the consequences of these connections and thinking about power and social justice, but not necessarily using the word nexus explicitly. I think that's that's really important, Carl, uh, something that you've pointed out, that we, coming from where we come from in terms of our disciplines or where we work, I think uh, we, we can use different framings or we can use different captions to capture the same thing, right? So there are different knowledge bases that we come from and Nexus may not be um, being used ex explicitly in these contexts, but what you're saying or what you're suggesting is that it is the nexus aspect of these resource interactions that we're looking at, whether we use the term nexus or not. And that brings me to my next question, because the book, I think towards the end, talks about the nexus ethics. And what Carl is suggesting is really that if the ethics is at the core, which is about these interconnections, keeping the politics, rights and justice at the heart of the matter, that is probably related to the idea of the nexus ethics. And 
you talk about knowledges. So Deepak, this is to you. Uh, you, you uh, all of you argue that doing this kind of nexus politics requires generation of new knowledge and that knowledge is going to be uncomfortable. So it, it requires new knowledge in terms of thinking about these sectors and how these sectors are gonna to work together. So can you tell us about this knowledge nexus that and the nexus ethics that you talk about in the book? What is it? Yeah, this, is, this is critical to the nexus actually, this uh, whole idea of uncomfortable knowledge. The expression actually comes from, uh, uh, you know, this is from the Mary Douglas cultural theory framing that we use very often in the book, you know, to explain many things. And uh, the late Steve Rayner, professor at Oxford, uh, he had this famous uh, phrasing where he said, wicked problems, uncomfortable knowledge, clumsy solutions. The idea being that, you know, climate change, uh, water, energy, you know, most of these things that we have uh, problems around, they are wicked problems in that it's forget solutions, we can't even agree on the definition of what the problem is, because there are so many different uh, um, ways of organizing or social carriers or whatever you may call them, uh, who see the problem very differently. One sees it as a technical problem, one sees it as a, as a profit problem, one sees it as a justice problem, and so on and so forth. And as a result, it's extremely important that uh, there are different concepts and the different ways by which they have arrived at the definition of their problem uh, be brought to the table. And this is what is uncomfortable. You know, my definition and my understanding of the problem is going to be very uncomfortable for, uh, let's say, a hydrocrat uh, sitting in a ministry trying to, you know, push forward a big dam on the Mekong or something like that. And here I come along saying that, wait a minute, you're destroying the fisheries and these very, uh, the livelihood of these fisheries, uh, fisher folks, uh, very marginal people. Now, uncomfortable knowledge is also tied up uh, with the idea that, uh, uh, you know, innovation, you know, we, this is, these days innovation is another buzzword. Okay. But uh, you find out that, and this comes from, you know, something that was said by the former Exxon chief and uh, U.S. State Secretary under Trump, Rex Tillerson, uh, who argued that it's not so much innovation that companies make money from, you know, uh, innovations are extremely disruptive, okay? uncomfortable knowledge. Okay? Uh, they make money from exnovations, he said. You know, tried and tested stuff that's working, let it work, let it generate your profit, dividends for shareholders, and so on and so forth. You try experimenting with innovations, and you can be highly disruptive. Okay, So this is, knowledge is disruptive, especially if it goes against uh, what is commonly believed. Okay, And uh, this is where Nexus comes in with this, this idea of transdisciplinarity, where the key idea is problem feeding. So you have this issue. Now, who's defining what the problem is? You know, uh, let's say take a hydro situation. You know, a big dam situation. You have engineers sitting there with their with their models and all that, saying this is how high a big dam we build and we generate so much hydropower and so on and so forth. Okay, but then you know, you out comes an economist or a lawyer or a social activist and an anthropologist or something and says, wait a minute, you know, the problem you're trying to solve is not going to solve this type of problem at all. So th there has to be a what is called problem feeding. And that problem feeding also has to come in, you know, more horizontally. You know, Carl discussed this thing about bottom up, you know, which is extremely critical to Nexus because the Nexus works at the bottom. It doesn't work at the higher 
end of the totem pole and national government agencies and United Nations and World Banks and all that. It doesn't seem to work up there. It seems to work perfectly fine at the farm village family level, okay, where they really bring in all their problems together. So uh, this transdisciplinarity is more horizontal among disciplines uh, and more horizontal among these siloed agencies that handle one particular discipline like finance ministry or foreign ministry or the forest ministry or whatever, okay? So it's this problem feeding that's extremely important. And if it's done well, then the emerging knowledge, uncomfortable knowledge will be a little less uncomfortable and will lead to what we call clumsy solutions. That is a solution that not everyone is happy with, but it's the minimum that they can all live with. Uh, not so much a consensus as a compromise where we retain our differences, okay? But agree that, okay, this is the minimum that we can say we will agree to and move forward. So this is where nexus is extremely important, you know, in this uncomfortable knowledge, uh, transdisciplinarity, innovation, you name it, that's where we are. Challenge for all of us in a way, Deepak, as academics or practitioners, I think, um, but remains compelling and something to strive towards. Um, now, this is a question that I was really tempted to put forward to all of you, um, but I'll, I'll probably start with Carl, that um, given that, you know, some time has passed since this book was published and also the project, uh, but I also understand that all of you have been working on the Nexus in different ways and have in a way reconceptualized and built forward the idea. So if you were given the opportunity to revisit or rewrite this book today in the present moment, when we are living through an array of uncertainties around water, health, energy, climate, and things that you've already spoken about, and they are intersecting in different ways in different contexts, is there anything that you would like to add to the book? Or have you identified certain gaps in the way you framed the nexus you know, a couple of years ago and now? Or do you see it as relevant as it was then? Thank you, Shilpi. So an invitation to write a second volume. I'm sure we all appreciate that. Yes. Um, I think uh, in terms of furthering the framing of the nexus, I could suggest at least three. I'm sure there are more. Um, my first um, suggestion would be that we might look more at the intersection of migration and climate change through a nexus lens. Um, I think the, you know, the food, water, energy nexus has often already been linked to the issue of climate change, um, but often in a not, not really in a critical way. And I would say that more broadly, how climate change is interacting with people's movement, whether it's emergency displacement or longer term trends in uh, migration that connect to kind of adapting to climate change. It hasn't really been thought about critically yet. There are some fairly straightforward explanations, but I think a deeper understanding of the political ecology of climate change and migration is needed. And I think the, the way that we've approached the nexus in this book, looking at the power politics and justice dimensions of food, water, and energy um, could also be useful in terms of thinking about this um, climate change and migration connection. And I think we didn't really address that enough in the, in the current volume. Um, a, a second theme that I think um, would be very interesting to extend the book towards is to contribute towards the very active discussions nowadays on kind of rethinking societal visions for the future. Um, so for example, um, in Europe, there's a lot of discussion about the degrowth movement 
uh, or in, uh, in the South, there's discussion on post-growth alternatives um, to market-led growth. Um, in Latin America, but I think this is kind of resonating globally, there's also a lot of discussion on the pluriverse. So just recognizing the diverse range of realities and aspirations for what development or post-development would mean. Um, so I think to a degree we engaged in these debates in the, in the book in the sense that we discussed on environmental justice, which is definitely one of the issues that comes up in, the, in these bigger debates. But I think we could go further and ask what would critical thinking on the nexus um, contribute to debates on degrowth or post-growth economies, for example. Um, a third potential um, theme that we could have explored more but is actually something that I see as quite contemporary is the relationship between resource politics and geopolitics. So as, as Jeremy already introduced earlier on, I mean, we did look at the global scaled politics of the nexus, um, especially the role of transnational corporations and um, forums like the World Economic Forum and how that's kind of furthered visions for this green eco economy that isn't particularly transformative. Um, I think the the geopolitics and resource politics is, has started to express itself in other ways as well, though. So at least in, in Southeast Asia, um, there's been growing debate and tensions between China and the US. Um, and one of the ways that's manifested has been over the issue of the impacts of large dams on the transboundary governance of the Mekong River and questions about whether uh, hydropower construction upstream by China has resulted in low flows downstream that has affected mainland Southeast Asia. So this is kind of geopolitics expressing itself through resource politics in the region uh, where the US um, has supported a, a platform that has used satellite data to really look at the levels of water on the river. And, and that has kind of led to very acrimonious discussions about like, the relative role of uh, hydropower climate change and so on. So I, I think looking at those bigger geopolitics and how that's playing out in nexus politics would be something that we could look further at. And I'm sure that will continue to change as time goes by as well. Jeremy, how do you see uh, taking the agenda of the nexus and nexuses forward? Sure, sure. So I, I think already in our book, there's quite a lot of messages um, in terms of taking the agenda forward. And I think the, the primary one that if you look at the history of sort of integrated approaches, is not to fall into the same mistake, which is the simple solution is about, is an institutional and an organizational response, which is basically joining up agencies. By joining up agencies, we get to arrive to holistic solutions. And, you know, from the history that we can see in terms of these integrated approaches, unfortunately, that has never uh, properly worked. So I think it's really important to go beyond this simple solution. So that's the first point. I think that what we've insisted quite a lot is about diversity. Uh, diversity uh, in terms of actors, uh, uh, that some actors are taking the agenda forward, but some actors are, are marginalized or are silenced. And I think these need to be better represented. It, it shouldn't be seen essentially as a concern just for multinational companies, but that the nexus represents something much broader. But this diversity is not just in terms of policy and actors, it's also about intellectual diversity. And I think, again, um, there's this tendency that 
engineers and modelers love the nexus. And I think there's this danger that social scientists look at it and say, well, it's a buzzword. It, 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 it's something essentially for modelers. It's something that we shouldn't be interested in. It, it can be can become, in some ways, to be provocative, a bit boring for them. Well, actually, no, it, it, it's just because it is approach in this particular way, but it raises so many more questions that social scientists need to, to address. So there's that. And I think overall there's this push. What we're trying to argue is to move from this paradigm of sort of nexus policy solution to nexus knowledge and nexus thinking or even nexus philosophy. So it's really about this broader understanding. So I think that these are, I think would be the key messages. And just to add on Carl's previous question, I think another important uh, aspect, which makes it even more critical, is the, the, the tendency towards more populism and authoritarian responses. And there, the impact it has also in terms of, uh, sort of marginalized people or, 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 or targeted, uh, targeted group, actually. Um, and, and we tend, again, to think about uh, access and rights per sectors, but the relationship between these are also crucial. So I think there also the, the, the nexus could, could, could bring some really interesting lights and thoughts. Thank you. Over to you, Deepak. What do you think in terms of taking this agenda forward? Yeah, uh, uh, the agenda will go forward, I think, uh, with or without us, <laughs> because uh, there's a huge amount of uh, rethinking of development that's going on. Uh, in the global south. Uh, the model that we had from the end of the Second World War has fallen apart, uh, as has the, have the institutional framing, okay? They're becoming more and more irrelevant to what is really happening on the ground. Uh, I think Carl mentioned this whole thing about uh, uh, China and uh, US thing in the Mekong. Well, in Nepal, uh, the Himalayas rose as a result of the geotectonics, right? Of the pushing of the Indian plate and the Chinese and the rise of the Himalaya. Well, we are seeing a massive tectonic uh, uh, politics here with the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative on the one side and the American MCC uh, Indo-Pacific strategy on the other. And we are caught smack in the middle of it, okay? And it's a huge question of redefining development and our voice in it, okay? What does it mean for us? So there are several things that uh, uh, will force us to do that. So uh, there is a move here right now to go back to traditional food over these high water consuming and high energy consuming food, okay? Uh, for instance, uh, the whole idea of nexus and the footprint, nexus, climate change and footprint, okay? Uh, why is it that potatoes grown in the hills of Nepal cannot compete against potatoes transported all the way from Punjab, you know, burning fossil fuel for thousands of miles, okay? Why is it? So the idea is that, you know, this new environmentalism uh, will have to go back to issues of water and energy footprint, uh, will have to go back to uh, issues of, uh, 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 you know, this carbon tax, uh, uh, water footprint tax. You know, there's a whole lot of rethinking of development that we really need to do of local uh, food types that are more healthy, you know, reliance more less on white rice and white bread and more on finger millet uh, and few other crops that consume far, far less water than rice does, okay? So these are the kind of, uh, uh, you know, debates that are coming in and the nexus approach is going to be very, very critical to all this. Thank you. 
That's fantastic. And lots of things to think about, actually, in terms of, you know, new environmentalism and WEF um, and issues that you have raised in terms of pluriversality, political ecology, migration politics, geopolitics, authoritarian populism, and how these are going to uh, intersect with the nexus, because they already do. And how do we build forward in terms of conceptualization and also in terms of practice? Thank you for such an enriching discussion. Thank you for, uh, for the book itself. I've always enjoyed reading it. I go back to it each time I have to think about the nexus and integrated or intersectoral dynamics in any field, actually, even at the field that I work in when I think about what are climate change and health, things that we touched up, uh, upon today as well. So thank, thanks a lot, Carl, Deepak, and Jeremy. Uh, and thank you for taking our time to speak to us. It was a pleasure talking to all of you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and share to help us spread the word. Do you have a great book we could feature in a future episode? Then get in touch on email at betweenthelines at ids.ac.uk.